I'm going to vary from my normal custom of reading all of the scripture first. I'll give a taste, but I want to save the bulk of it for the body of the sermon. But two passages, one from 2 Corinthians, the 5th and the 6th chapters, and Hebrews, the 2nd chapter. But let's hear 2 Corinthians 5.20 and 6.10, and later we'll hear the verses in between. We are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. And from Hebrews, the second chapter, but now we do not yet see all things put under him, but we do see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Father, may the words of my lips and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. We are looking at objections to the Christian faith, and today we come... To one of the most aching, heartfelt, and universal of all questions that can be asked. Why does God allow suffering? If God is both perfectly good and absolutely powerful, why does evil exist? The Catholic theologian Hans Kuhn calls this question the rock of atheism. If God is loving and evil exists, then so the argument goes, he can't be all-powerful. Or, if God is all-powerful and evil exists, he can't be loving. For most of us, this question arises in a deeply personal way. Beside a hospital bed, in the wake of the loss of a loved one, in response to immense physical or emotional pain of our own, or perhaps even worse, of that of someone we love. I doubt there's a person in this room that, if you have lived long enough, has not asked that question multiple times. Early in my teaching career, I find myself in the presence of one of the uh, most eminent evangelical theologians of the late and early 21st century, late 20th century, Roger Nicole. He taught at Gordon-Conwell Seminary for many years. He was already retired for some time when I met him, but for 20 years in his, quote, retirement, he was professor at Reformed Seminary. He was almost 90 when I talked to him. He died at 95. The one question I asked him and the one time I knew I would have with him was out of all the years of his experience of teaching seminarians and teaching theology, what he did in his classes when he came to the question of the problem of evil. I don't think I will ever forget his answer. He gave it in his rich French-Swiss accent. He said, people don't understand how evil, evil is. Evil is a deep, dark, desolate, empty thing. It makes no sense. If we could draw a map of how we got lost, then we wouldn't be lost. 
So people shouldn't expect the problem of evil to make sense. With that as a warning, let's do, however, and try and shed some light on the darkness of evil. Karl Barth said it was a subject that no Christian should be ignorant of. Ignorance isn't a virtue. It is itself a kind of sin. But neither, he said, should we be fascinated by it. I believe our culture is fascinated by Halloween because we want to play with evil. We are fascinated by it, but to be that, we want to make it safe, so we play with it. Bart said we should look at evil clearly but quickly. We should deal with it squarely, head on, but look away and not linger. Walt Disney once said, I put that in my text so that Glenn's credentials of being a prophet would still remain intact after this Sunday. (laughs) Walt Disney once said, life is composed of lights and shadows. And we would be untruthful, insincere, and saccharine if we tried to pretend there were no shadows. So let's note at the outset that evil has different facets, different faces, different dimensions. And just by way of introduction, let me name three important ones. First, there is natural evil. Some have defined that as the mutual interference of systems. That's about as abstract as you can get. But two physical objects can't occupy the same space at the same time. And out of that truth, much natural evil emerges from tiny bacteria to tidal waves, from viruses to volcanoes. The whole natural fallen world is highlighted by bad things, things that make you sick things that injure you, things that may kill you. Rarely does a day go by in which we do not learn and hear of natural disasters where massive amounts of people somewhere have died by plague or illness or through the intentions of others. Natural evil. Actually, I bleed it over on that last phrase. I bleed it over to moral evil. Moral evil isn't external, it isn't physical, it's personal and internal and spiritual. It is the product of bent natures, of bent dispositions, of bent attitudes. It's a course of thinking and speaking and conduct, and it dominates the human race. Scripture says no one is good, not even one. And all the thoughts of the human heart are only continually evil. Scripture says that it is out of the heart that lust conceives and produces sin, and from that sin comes death. Even if we were to evade all the natural evils and disasters and diseases, we would still die because the wages of sin are death. And no one is exempt. The world is full of immoral immoral sinners colliding with other immoral sinners in malfunctioning families and friendships and rivalries and associations and nations. 
the collision of wicked, selfish, immoral hearts fills the world with one disaster after another, moral evil, natural evil. Then there is a third, supernatural evil. The Bible does tell us that evil has an external, initiatory, invading, attacking force. It came to Eve and Adam with her in the garden in the form of a snake who spoke. The earliest symbolism of evil in the world, older than scripture itself, found in cave paintings is of as a stain. It's a profound thought. If evil is, at least in one facet, a stain, it means it isn't part of our natural creation. It invades us. It comes from the outside. It despoils who we are. So there is natural evil and moral evil, which is what we are usually talking about when we're talking about evil, but also this initiatory, invading, attacking, external form of supernatural evil, which is demonic. I preached a sermon once on that. I, I considered dusting it off and sharing it with you because I like the outline. I'm not going to, but here's the outline. I call it the spiral of the seduction of sin. What does the serpent do in the garden? He maximizes the restrictions. Satan is called the father of lies. He speaks with half-truths, partial truths. Uh, he comes and says to Eve, didn't God say you can't eat any of the fruit of the garden? Is that what God said? It's only one tree, one spot, one place. So Satan maximizes the restrictions. We feel that way, don't we? we if we're obedient and we fall, everything that's important about John Shasta is going to be squashed. It's going to be made small. I can't stand that. The restrictions are maximized. Secondly, the consequences are minimized. If you do this, Eve, you won't surely die. The consequences are minimized. And the action is relabeled. Uh, you'll have the knowledge of good and evil. You'll be like God. You won't die. You won't be like God. And Eve saw the fruit of the tree, and it was beautiful. So good and evil is confused. It's in Sin is intermingled with beauty, and the implications of all of these actions are misunderstood. These are part of the strategies of the spiral of seduction of sin which attacks us. So there are the facets. There's the introduction. We're laying the land of natural and moral and supernatural evil. We're going through these series because many of us, I know not all, but many of us are in small groups during the week, which is going to be looking at material. Let me share with you what I think is the most interesting point that is coming up from that material, and namely it is that Hans Kung was wrong. The cry against evil, rather than being evidence for atheism, is deeply evidence for the existence of God himself. We have no way of knowing something is really evil. Unless there is a God who established a moral law by which evil can be judged. If our hearts cry out against injustice, it must mean that either our cry is meaningless or there is some source of justice, which means evil is the world 
out of adjustment, put awry, distorted, broken. C.S. Lewis put it this way. My argument as an atheist was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A person doesn't call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. Of course, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too. The cry against evil is a cry out to some righteousness himself. Now, very briefly, I want to touch two big things and then kind of leave them. Uh, We're going to look, let's make several observations, and I want to end with one challenge. Observations about the origins of evil. One of the perplexing questions of all of human life, I'm not going to solve it in two and a half minutes. But let's name two regular answers. The one is a metaphysical account. It says something like this. Evil necessarily exists as a consequence of a good creation. In saying yes to the world, in creating a good world, God passively but necessarily has that which he says no to. That evil doesn't have any existence in itself, but only as a deprivation, a despoilation, a vacuity of the good. We couldn't have spoiled milk unless we had sweet milk, good milk. So when God creates in goodness, he necessarily has that which he says no to, which is the shadow side of the light. It's the metaphysical argument. The other argument is the argument for autonomy or from freedom. God is all-powerful, but he can't do that which is illogical. And in creating a free world and free creatures, there is necessarily the possibility for them to choose evil, for them to go a different way. God is not the author of evil, but his creation is. Now, we could spend the next week talking about those two arguments. Let me just summarize them by saying one thing about them with two parts. Namely, that there is some truth to both of them, and both arguments have problems. I think there is an answer which is more congruent. I'm not going to dodge it. I will in the sermon. If you want to catch me at the door afterwards, I think it has something to do with the omniscience of God and the glory of God. But this is a vexing issue. But interestingly, it's one which the Bible has very little interest in. The Bible is much more interested in how we are going to live lives of integrity and decency and courage and bravery in the face of evil. God's promise in the Bible is not to deliver us from evil, but to be with us and walk with us in the midst of us. So what I want to spend more time on is God's promises in the face of the existence of evil. And the first is, of course, that he promises to use evil. C.S. Lewis said God whispers to us in our pleasures and he speaks to us in our consciences, but he shouts to us in our pain. 
It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Although God does not cause evil, although I believe he ordains it, nonetheless, he works in evil to bring about a greater good. A text many of you will be using uses the example of Joseph. His brothers sell him into slavery. He goes through uh, years and decades of difficulty, but he is brought to a point in which he is able to save his family and his brothers and, by extension, Israel herself. God allows lesser evil to bring about a greater good. We know the law of the gym. No pain, no gain. Uh, We can't achieve patience without tribulation or forgiveness without sin. Hebrews tells us for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained in it. Or James wrote, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. He only uses that word various twice. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. The word in the Greek is polkaloi, but the word we use for polka dot, it is varied, it's many-hued, it's all over the map. He brings you polkaloi trials, and in the first chapter, he says God also sends polkaloi varied, multifaceted graces. Perhaps could it be that for each trial, for each difficulty, God sends to his people the blessing of a pokaloid grace, a special targeted way in which we can deal with it or walk through it or the way it can be used for our greater good and his greater glory. God is simply more interested in our holiness than in our happiness. Nowhere in the Bible does it say, be happy, happy, happy. I think that is on television somewhere (laughs) these days in Duck Dynasty, but it's not the Bible. The Bible does say, be holy, holy, holy. God promises to use evil. Then secondly, One of the ways that the people of God are given strength to deal with evil is in the fact of promise that no matter what we experience, no matter what we walk through, no matter what we endure, this is not the end. This is not the entire picture. This is not the whole story. This is not all that is. No matter what we experience, no matter what we are enduring, this is not the end of the story. That's why Hebrews 2.8 is my personal favorite verse when dealing with what is in some ways the mystery of evil and suffering. We do not yet see all things subject to him, but we do see Jesus. It is pointing to the future. And thirdly, every Christian dealing with evil and suffering points to the cross, that at least there is one thing that Christians ask this question different from every other religion, every other worldview, because we ask it not to a distant or remote deity, but to a God who has entered suffering himself. 
we ask the question of evil and suffering to a God who has taken it so seriously that he has shared it, that he has entered into life with us, that he has taken it upon his shoulders, and not only that, but that he has overcome it. Hebrews declares that Christ himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Only an all-good and all-powerful God can offer the kind of hope that we need in the face of uh, the consequences of the life we live. If God is entirely good, we know that he desires to overcome evil. And if he's entirely powerful, we know he can overcome evil. Consequently, the logic of that is that in the fullness of time, we can be assured by logic as well as scripture itself, he will overcome evil. Several observations. I want to close, though, but really spend most of the time, proportionately, on a challenge. It's kind of coming at the problem uh, sideways, but I think it comes at it the way Scripture comes at it. One of uh, the most brilliant students I've ever had in 28 years of teaching, University of California, Berkeley graduate, currently an associate pastor at an African-American church in the city. He uh, was for many years a Christian high school teacher, such a good teacher. They took him out of the classroom and said, I want you to teach all of the teachers in the school. And for quite a few years, he was just a teacher of teachers. I'm trying desperately to uh, convince him to do a PhD with us at Golden Gate. He's been out for about 10 years. But in class one day, he's creative. He's a creative teacher of teachers. He, uh, his term paper on theodicy, which is what we're talking about today, theo, God, and disi, which, theodicy, which comes from the same word for righteousness, or it's a justification of God, or trying to give an answer to the problem of evil about God, a theodicy, answer to the problem. His paper was on a theodicy, and he did a theodicy game. He had a board, and he had cards, and he had the old game, which we're not, the Bible doesn't ask us to play. It's the kind of game I've entertained up to now. It's the kind of game where the cards had questions like, well, how can there be a good God in an evil world? And the next one, well, how can God be all-powerful and evil exists? And that's the game that he put aside. He said, here's the biblical game of theodicy. The questions were all different. They were better. The questions he had us ask were, in face of the inevitable evil that will come into my life, how can I live a life of faithfulness? How can I live a life which witnesses with integrity and power to the Lord Jesus Christ? The study many of us are going through is primarily interested in that and how we can commend the faith of Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ to those who do not yet believe. How can we commend with power this faith? So I want you to hear at this point again the full text of 2 Corinthians 5. We'll start with the 20th verse and read through to the 6th chapter, the 10th verse. We are ambassadors for Christ. His interest is being a witness. 
His interest is in living faithfully. God making his appeal through us, so we put no obstacle in anyone's way. So now listen to this recounting of how he is not going to put obstacles in people's ways. So that no fault may be found with our ministry, but as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. Here's how no fault is going to come and how the gospel is going to be commended in every way. By great endurance, in inflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labor, sleepless nights, hunger, Now there's going to be a commendation of his character. By purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. Through, And now he's going to, having listed difficulties and character qualities, he's going to list paradoxes. Through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. I want to focus, I want to leave you with that thought of obstacles being reduced and the gospel being commended by life which among other things is sorrowful yet also rejoicing. I believe that's what the world needs to see. This is the opposite of the health and wealth gospel. If uh, you're going through good times, if you have prosperity, if things are well for you, it's Easy to understand how you could be rejoicing, but for those who have met difficulties of life, who have looked at face-to-face sorrowful, yet also rejoicing, this is what the world needs. There's no accident, I believe, that when Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount commends those who are being persecuted because rejoice in that, and immediately following that, he says, be salt and light to the world. That's What the world needs to see and know and taste, the tang of the salt of faithful lives and the light of lives which can find joy even in the midst of sorrowing. It's a paradox, but it is true. One one of the great surprises, I haven't had many surprises in pastoral ministry, but the greatest surprise of all was with what pain people walked. Scratch the surface of almost anyone you get to know, and there has been deep suffering. And almost without exception, I'd like to say without exception, and I can't think of an exception, but almost without exception, those who I have seen evidence the greatest joy and walk with the deepest faith and rely most deeply on the promises of God are those who have walked through deep suffering. There is something about suffering that if met with Christ, if met with the rock of the promises of Scripture, 
can make us deep rather than superficial. Christ, how do we do this? How do we live lives of joy in the midst of sorrow? It is only because if we, with Hebrews 2, can in the midst of suffering see Jesus and know Jesus and trust his cross and know that this is not the end and that God will use even the worst things that happen to us to bring about his best and the great glory. He takes the brokenness of life. He never recreates the same way, but puts it together in a new way, a better way, a richer way, a deeper way. Jesus Christ is the antidote to all of the poisons, all of the toxins of our life. Jesus Christ is the answer to the brokenness of our life. He puts life together in a way which will never let us down and never let us go. Living in a holy God, we uh, confess that we have many questions about pain and suffering and evil. And it would be um, unfaithful not to grapple with them. But we recognize that we grapple with them and bring them before one who has taken all of our sufferings upon your own shoulders. That when we face evil, we face it with one who has gone against it before us and deeper than we will ever go and on whose shoulders we can be lifted. We are thankful that no matter what we walk through, that in Christ it is not all that is and it is not the end. We are thankful that beyond the grave is the resurrection power of your light and life and love, which you have made visible and possible through the person and ministry of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray.